Oh, Father, we do thank you that you give us the book of Psalms, and we thank you, Father, now that you are here to illumine our hearts and minds in it. We know, Lord, that the things that are spiritual, this very word of God, are to be received of your spirit. And indeed, it's a spirit who gives us the openness of heart and mind and illumines our hearts and minds. And so, Father, would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Uh, we thank you that all that you have for us is for our good, uh, that you might lead us and that you might be our God. Uh, do bless us. Bless us with your presence now. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right here in this psalm, it is a psalm where heads of states, uh, heads of, and, and authorities and cities and counties and uh, the state itself, even here in Texas, at the federal level, uh, heads of our government. Here is something in this psalm that such ones who lead us in places of leadership need to hear. King David, after all, was the king there in Israel's own day. Our very parents in places of authority, parents need to hear what is in this psalm with their own responsibility. Uh, those of us who are grandparents and we're thinking about the, the next generation after which, you see, our children's children, that we might model well what's here in this psalm too. And I want to point out for pastors, pastors are underneath this psalm. Elders, deacons are underneath this psalm in terms of what it is about. We, in places of religious authority, pl places of religious service, are to give heed and, and to be vigilant about what's in this psalm. So what are we talking about? What's in this psalm, Mark? What is it? It is to openly acknowledge that we've sinned. <laughs> that in fact, we are sinners. Uh, someone has said the four hardest words for us to get out. I acknowledge my sin. The four hardest words for a man, woman, or child to say. Once again, David is a shepherd. David is a king. He has charge over the flock of Israel. He has charge over God's people. And here he is as a king reflecting upon this importance. And he's wanting this psalm to be known as a teaching, a, a, a lesson, a point of teaching for us. Again, I said that word masculine, a lesson to learn, something of teaching, something to take in of instruction. You have that in verse eight. Look at verse eight. God now is speaking, I will instruct you and I will teach you. That's where it comes out. This is a psalm of instruction about acknowledging our sin. Being forthright and open and to own it for what it is. Let's look at the, in the first place at the place of the believer. We have several points here this morning as we, as we just travel through and narrate through and watch and listen and learn and take in things along the way. The place of the believer opens up for us in verses 1 and 2. This is where David starts. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, who is, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is wonderful, people of God. So many places in the Bible that have instruction for us begin actually with a place of blessing and a place of telling us what is the position of the believer, the place of the believer. He's in a place, she's in a place of blessing. Think of the book of Ephesians. If you know that book back in the New Testament, back in the New Testament here, you come to Ephesians and so many of our pastors will tell us rightly so. So many of us as Bible readers, rightly so, we see it. 
that those, that those first opening chapters are about blessing. Blessed be our God and Father, right? It opens that way in the whole book. Who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. And then we know later, then later down in the book, he gets to that place of instruction, places of commandments, places where we're to heed what God has said to do. And you have that same kind of imagery here. David begins with blessing. That's the place where we live. If you name the name of Christ this morning, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you live in this place of blessing. And we get that double reinforcement in this passage. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Twice, double reinforcement. David is saying, get this, get this, get this. This is who we are in Christ. And this is no different for Jesus himself. Jesus opens his ministry. The father makes that pronouncement about his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Early on in Jesus' earthly ministry where he's set apart, he's baptized there in the Jordan. And that voice from heaven speaks. The, the, the spirit like a, a dove descends upon him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I, in whom I, I see my blessing and my blessing rests upon him. This is the life of the believer. So this morning, if Christ is yours, you're in Jesus. And this is the ordinary place of the life of the believer. To have the blessing of God. Let's take a look at some of these blessings that are even mentioned in these opening verses. These first two verses. It first comes, into, it comes to us in the way of being reminded about our sin, what God has done about our sin. There are three words here for sin. Three words for sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Next one, whose sin is covered. Next one, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, real quick, if you go on down to verse, um, uh, verse uh, sorry, verse 5, Look what David does. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover over my iniquity. I will confess my what? Transgressions. You see that? David's very mindful about the blessings he has received. Just in terms of where the Christian stands. Three uses here of the word sin. Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, in writing about this psalm, he talks about a three-headed dog. Three places of sin. The three uses of sin. Hey, the three-headed dog is at the gates of hell. The three-headed dog is at the gates of hell. But our glorious Lord has silenced his barkings forever against his own believing ones. This three, the three notions of sin is what Spurgeon is getting at. So what is transgression? Let's take him up real quick. What is it that God has blessed us with concerning forgiveness totally here? That's what we're talking, the big picture of forgiveness of our sin. Transgression is lacking submission. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. Sin is falling short. We oftentimes hear that, right? It's missing the mark, falling short. That is sin. That's the, that's the general characterization of man's life. He's a man, a woman of ruin, lacking in want, falling, missing. That is sin. And then there is iniquity. And that's where the Bible here tells us that our God is the one who counts against the one, against that man in Christ, with no iniquity. Counts no iniquity against him. This is the idea, no twisting of ways, no record of twisted ways. That's what iniquity is, no record of twisted ways in his life. Now, David speaks of thanksgiving here. Transgression, transgressions are forgiven. Sin is covered. You see those words? And there's no counting 
of iniquity against him. Again, what are the blessings? Let's take each one real quick. What is forgiveness? It's the lifting away of our sin. It's the lifting away. That's what forgiveness is. What is this covering? It's putting it out of sight, out of God's sight. God covers over our sin. And what is this? The Lord not counting iniquity? That means the Lord counts the record of another in the sinner's place. This man's record is not counted against him. Implication, it's counted against someone else. That counting is done to someone else. And you see, this is the wonderful marriage of the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding God's grace, isn't it? The wonderful marriage of grace and forgiveness. Our God is the God who lifts our sins away in Christ. Our God is the God who puts them out of his sight in Christ Jesus. There's a covering over. His blood covers over our sin. He made the sacrifice. And then sin's not charged to our account when it should be. He receives the imputation of our sin. He takes on the record of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us at Calvary's cross, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He's, he's the record of substitute for us. Now, what I want you to watch is this, the, is this is the language of Old Testament sacrifice, an aroma rising to the Lord. You remember that? Mm -hmm. You know, bring in that lamb, right? Bring in that goat with that, with that sinner to, to, to the tabernacle. And there would be Aaron, his sons, and they would receive that substitute there, offered there on the altar. And it would be an aroma being raised up. That's forgiveness. The smoke rising, rising upward, the lifting away of our sins. Then you have the actual physical sacrifice. That's to say there's an atonement to cover over sin. The lamb, the ram, the sheep, the goat. And then there's this record of a substitute. This is the substitute. This one takes my place. This one is here on the altar in the place of the sinner and the sins of God's people. The smoke, the sacrifice, the substitute. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus himself offered himself as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5.1, a fragrant offering of an aroma. The Bible tells us that indeed, through the one man's righteousness, the many are made righteous. He's the substitute. He's the one acting on behalf of his own people. And this is what Abraham knew. David will take, sorry, Paul will take this psalm and what David has written about, Paul, the apostle, missionary Paul, will bring that psalm back over here into Romans chapter 4. And there in Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul is reflecting on Psalm 32 and he says, you know the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham, God indeed, when he believed the Lord, Abraham, when he believed the Lord, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He credited it to his account as righteousness. This is justification. Here are all the blessings that we have received. And Christ Jesus is the one through whom we have such forgiveness. He is that rising aroma of the smoke. He is indeed that substitute who takes our place 
and he is indeed that sacrifice given for our very sin. Now, congregation of the Lord, if you are in Jesus today, by faith, not by works, David starts here by the blessings coming to him. Blessed is that man whose transgression is forgiven. It's not by what we offer to God. It's what God has done for him, what God has done for us. And that's why the, the Bible tells us, for, for by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, not by your doing, but God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That is how salvation is provided. Now, friends, with this psalm being focused in on confession of our sin, with this psalm being focused here on the confession of our sin, we then ask the question, if this is who we are in Christ, what could go wrong? <laughs> a lot, right? <laughs> and that's why David wants to teach a lesson here. So watch now his practice. We've seen the place where the believer is. But now watch his practice. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. We want to learn skills of confessing our sins? Yes, we're in Christ. But typically, all too often, our default practice is to leave the God we love. And David uses this language. We try to help ourselves. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped, dried up is the language here, by the heat of the summer. We know that ourselves here in Houston. But do you see the complete contrast that is now front and center? God has spoken blessings. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one in whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessing, blessing, blessing. God has spoken, but now what happens here, man's practice is in his silence about his sin. You see the contrast. Silence in his sin, he wallows and he wastes away. There are three, a threefold blessing back in one and two. That is to say, our transgressions are forgiven, our sin is covered, and against one that the Lord will not count iniquity, those three blessings, three blessings. And now you have three, three, if I can say it this way, it's going to be sort of contradictory, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's a silence here of the threefold anguish. His bones are wasting away. There's groaning all day long and there's strength that's now drying up. <laughs> now in the Bible, silence is not actual physical <clears throat> silence. It's man's way of covering his sin. That's the lesson the lessons David's driving home here. It's, try, it's trying to hide something. Jesus always told his father what was on his heart. That's to say he was always in perfect communion with his father. 
Jesus, not the man of sin, the man of righteousness. That's why, we, that's why we call upon him to save us from our sins. But in his life before his father, he was in that continual and constant communion. The heart was completely opened unto his father, unlike the silence of David here. Listen to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. He's not left me alone. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is speaking about his father. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There's that constant communion. Man has his silence. Our Savior is the one who's always in communion with his Father. Oh, how we need the Lord Jesus. I want to spend just a little bit more time about this silence that we experience. This silence that we experience. What do I mean about silence? The silence that we experience in our own lives, thinking that we can handle our sin, we can deal with our sin, we know, what, we, we know it's what, what's best about our sin. What I'm suggesting here is silence in the Bible is really never, never silent. Silence about sin is always calculating. Many Bible teachers believe that Psalm 32 is David's reflection about his sin with Bathsheba. Think about David's sin with Bathsheba. Do you ever remember David's silence? I don't either. David was never silent about this sin. <laughs> That's to say, he had the inner man always tracking, always working, always plotting, always scheming, dealing with his sin. You remember the story, just in brief. He's at home. His eye catches Bathsheba. They're uh, bathing. And what the eye catches, the lusts start to stir, and he acts. Takes her for her wife, committing adultery. And now the calculations begin. He sends for Uriah, her husband, he tells Uriah, go down to your own house, Uriah, come and eat and drink. He even helps Uriah reason through things. You've had a long journey, Uriah. Surely you need rest. He continues on, and he sends a gift to Uriah's house. He's making every plot, every move. It's a chess game. It's a calculation in the inner man, calculating about his sin, somehow to overcome it, to deal with it, to manage it. He then, send, he, he then gets him drinking. Surely he will loosen up. That's the implication, right? He will go and be with his wife, and the sin will get covered. All of this is happening. He then sends a letter to the front lines, to his commanding army, uh, his commander, Joab. Pull the army back. Make sure Uriah is there on the front line, plotting, scheming. There's no silence here. And finally then, Joab sends word back to him. And if you go through 2 Samuel 11, it's David did, David did, then he did, then he did, then he did. And you get to the very end of that chapter and you have these words. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And that's where we live. Our tendency is to calculate and not to confess. I thought this week that in our calculations, we live in lies. And that's why he says in the early part of the psalm, in whose spirit there's no deceit. That's to say, the man, woman, child who breaks fellowship with God, the man, woman, child who veers off into sin, 
And then in that turmoil and backwash and the consequences of that sin and calculation about that sin, what do we do? We start to cover things up and we start to live a lie. And it's all in our efforts to hide our sin. Now, David has a lesson here. Let's go on. It's the precept. We've seen the place. We've seen a default practice, trying to hide, trying to be silent, trying to cover over our own. But now his precept for us, a way to go for us, verses 5 and 6, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. Oh, you see the irony here. Only God can cover sin. But yet we try. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is saying, if you learn truth, God's people, if you learn truth, good shepherd, come and freely confess your sin. Come and tell the Lord all about it. Own it. Walk in that place of confession. Walk in that place. What do we say? That confession is to say the same thing that God says about your sin, right? You've heard that. Confession is to say the same thing about what God says about your sin. Name it. Tell him. Open up about it. Why? Because 1 John tells us if we say we have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. It's agreeing with God. It's telling him. It's owning it. It's specifically naming the transgression. Lord, this is it. And that's what David is saying the precept is. Let's go on. He has a further lesson for us to take in. It's the provision of instruction. We've seen the place of the believer in Christ, what blessing we have. And yet, because of remaining sin in the Christian's life, we have this default practice. David's now instructing us by saying, come and confess. This is the precept. This is the place of his commandment. Come and tell the Lord your sin. But then now, there's an incentive here. Why do we go to the Lord? Why should we? Lord, what is it about you that indeed invites us, welcomes us to come to you wholeheartedly with our sin? Look at the provision of instruction. Verse 8, Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. <coughs> there are two doctrines that David pulls out of his little pouch here. His Bible teaching pouch, two doctrines. The first is the doctrine of God. Why go to the Lord with our sin? Because our God is present. You may be found, he says. God is near, knowing all about our sin, but he's near us in that he's, he's welcoming us. Come, tell me, I am your father. God is also more doctrine about God. He's also a safe place. He says, you're a hiding place. That means there's a place where there indeed is security. Though men, and as we say, though men and women will bail on us, God never does. He's a safe place. He's also more doctrine. He's also a deliverer. 
You surround me with songs of deliverance. God has answers for our sin. He has answers for our guilt. He has answers for our shame. We're bathed in the promise. You surround me. We're bathed in his promises. More doctrine. He's our teacher. I will instruct you. I will guide you. I'll have my eye right on you. What incentives? Incentives to go to our God and our Father through his Son with our sin. But there's one other area of doctrine here. It's the doctrine of the mule, (laughs) right? Sound teaching. Do you know that my last name means mule? Sumterius, a bearer of burdens. Sumter, you're a mule. You're a pack horse, man. That's the Latin. That's the Latin of my last name, Sumter. There's the doctrine of man here being a mule. How is he described? He's without understanding. You see, the proverb is so clear. Lean not on your own understanding about your sin. He must be guided. That's what he's saying here. He needs that bit. He needs that bridle, the horse figure. Of course, the horse, the mule here in the psalm. We have a tendency to wander off. That's why he says here that indeed there will be this one who will not stay near you. This horse or this mule will not stay near. This is our fatherly care and correction, our training. That's what he's doing. The Lord loves those whom he chastises, those whom he instructs, guides, corrects. And once again, this is the provision of our God. You see, what an incentive. Father, I don't deserve to return to you, but I'm coming as your son. I know I've been displeasing before your sight and before your people, but I'm coming as your daughter. Because you are near to me. And you are a strong tower. You're a safe place. You're a deliverer. And you're my teacher. Remember that one occasion where Jesus is instructing the twelve. It's near the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just told them that he is one among them who serves. He is one who serves in their midst. And it's right in that same section where there's been the debate about those who will have a certain place in the kingdom. Jesus is actually talking about the kingdom that's going to come. But Jesus kind of just skirts around that language, but then he he picks up on this language of man's weakness. And once again, Jesus is inviting Peter and James and John and those around to take him in. Why? Because he says this, I'm I'm among you as one who serves, and you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I will assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. But then he turns to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. You remember that? He may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And that's what Jesus is doing, drawing near with that incentive Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, he says. I am the one praying for you. I am the one who knows all about your sin, that your faith may not fail. 
Now the question might come, just in brief here, the question might come that, well, why do we have to keep confessing our sins if the Christian is blessed in Christ? Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose sin and transgression is forgiven. If that's where we are in Christ, why do we have this matter of growing and learning and, and walking in the Christian life with, with confession of sin? Isn't it all done? No. We are positioned in Christ as we learn from the Bible. Christ is ours. We're in Christ. We're seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But the practical day-to-day, -day, right? The practical day-to-day -day means that we keep going to Him to confess our sins. Why? To be like unto Him. To pursue Him in holiness. To walk in closeness with Him. To have that fellowship. To have that blessing of that nurturing and closeness of our covenantal God with whom we have communion day by day. Because you see, that communion gets interrupted by our sin. And so we confess our sin, and He is faithful, and He is righteous to forgive us. One last P, and it's privilege. We have a privilege here as well. David will tell us in verse 10, uh, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. I simply want to point out this. There's a tremendous contrast now. The psalm has really been all about God's people. But he inserts these few words here at verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. We have a privilege before our God to know the smile of God, right? What a blessing to have forgiveness. What a blessing that guilt has been removed. What a blessing to walk with the king. The wicked know sorrows. The wicked know that anguish. The, the wicked know the guilt and that insecurity and that fear, that dread. But David says, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness surrounds him. And that's why he finishes, be glad in the Lord, rejoice you righteous ones, shout for joy. What does this mean about this privilege? We have a witness to others, friends. With your unbelieving neighbor, with your unbelieving coworker, with your unbelieving family member, extended family member, you have a privilege. Now here's what we jointly share. Every one of us are all on the same page on this one. <laughs> we jointly share that we all make messes in life. Sin. So we come, so we come alongside of a neighbor, beside a coworker, some family member, some dear one that God has brought into your world, to your life, and we simply say in so many words, you, you put it in your own words, you put it in your own way of testimony and witness, you simply say, I understand the sin that we're in, the messes that we make. Now here's the difference. Our God and our Savior through His Son comes to clean up the messes. And we tell our neighbors that. We go to our God, who's the God who gives us the grace of the good news of his son to clean up the mess. Who will it be, maybe someone this week, that will come to you and simply say, I've been watching your life. I'm aware of something about your religious leanings, or I know you're a Christian. And they simply sit down with you and say, my life's a mess. 
your opening line, minus two. And Christ is the one that makes all the difference. He's come to clean up messes. Those four hardest words, I acknowledge my sin. That's the lesson David is driving home by the Spirit. May we be a people of God who say, yes, Lord, come and cleanse us. Come and renew us in your Son that we will walk with you for all of our days. Let's pray. Our Father in, our heaven, in heaven, how we thank you that you are the great God of forgiveness. What a joy, what liberty, what freedom we have. And so, Father, would you so build in our hearts a hungering and a thirsting to know that you are with us, that your eye is upon us, and that you will guide us and you will counsel us and you will, you will instruct us. We pray, O oh Lord, may we in Christ Jesus live for the Lord, model for one another what it is to take our sin to the Lord and to receive his forgiveness and, Lord, to, to know what it is to be restored. Oh, Father, would you make us to be a people who trust in Christ, love the Lord, and love the Lord alone, for he indeed is the one whom you've given for our sin. We ask your rich blessing, Lord. We, we know you called us uh, whenever that opportune time comes to be a witness for you May we have your words of your power of love and grace and forgiveness. Go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.